How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. A few moments of silent prayer to take the opportunity to identify any known sins to God the Father so that we can uh, have forgiveness, be cleansed, uh, ready to study the Word, filled with the Spirit. And then I will open prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to study your word, to be refreshed by the teaching of your word as we uh, continue to study through Genesis to learn the foundational doctrines related to uh, the rest of Scripture, doctrines related to forming our worldview, helping us think through the issues of life in a biblical way. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who uh, not only dwells us, but fills us, who teaches us, guides us in Scripture, uh, brings Scripture to our memory so that we can apply it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just one sort of contemporary news item. My uh, brother-in-law just took a job over in the Middle East, and he just found his way to Amman, Jordan, and is sort of getting his feet on the ground, figuring out what's what and what's going on. And he sent back an email today saying that today he visited the free trade zone just on the uh, Jordan side of the Iraqi border, where he saw hundreds of thousands of pounds of metal brass and uh, brass and copper ingots that were being loaded into shipping containers for sale probably to China. The ingots are what's left of the brand-new telecommunication towers and power lines that the U.S. forces have installed recently in Iraq. Apparently the bad guys can dismantle the towers, strip the lines for their copper, melt them into easy-to-handle ingots as quickly as we're putting them up and then they sell them to fund their uh, terrorist activities. So that's just another insight into what's going on in Iraq. Okay, tonight we hit a subject within the framework of Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Last week we went through the basic uh, basic points of the Noahic Covenant. This is the contract that God made with Noah. When Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, the eight of them came off the ark. We went through the provisions. We went through the promises of the Noahic Covenant. All of this, I pointed out, must be treated as a holistic document. A, a covenant is a contract. You can't go into a contract 
and take it apart and say, okay, well, these provisions still apply and these don't. Either the whole document still applies or it doesn't. As we looked at the Noahic Covenant, this covenant still applies. Everything in this covenant still applies because God promises in this covenant that never again will he destroy the earth by water, and the sign of his promise is the rainbow that's set in the clouds. So as long as we can look outside in a thunderstorm, as long as the sun is to our back, and we see that rainbow, we know that this covenant is still in effect. All the provisions in it are still in effect. And I pointed out last time that certain elements of this uh, contract aren't politically correct today in some arenas, such as the fact that there's the authorization for man to eat animal flesh. And man is to cook it, of course. He's not to drink the blood, but he is authorized to eat meat. Man, up to the point of the flood, was vegetarian. But at the point of the flood, he was uh, mandated to eat meat. That is now necessary for his uh, his diet. Furthermore, in verse verses 5 through 7, or actually just 5 and 6, we have the authorization and the mandate to carry out capital punishment. Now, this is a difficult thing for a lot of modern Americans. It's certainly difficult for some Christians because they haven't been taught properly. Here in verse 5, God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, for in the image of God he made man. Now that has historically been understood as the verse which undergirds the institution of human government. So this begins the next dispensation, and it brings into focus the fourth divine institution. Remember, we have studied three other divine institutions already, which were established before the fall. The first divine institution was the institution of human responsibility, that man is accountable for his action. This implies volition that man can choose for or against God, man can choose to obey or disobey God, that man is held accountable, responsible for his decisions, and ultimately he is responsible to God. God is the authority in the first divine institution. The second divine institution was marriage, not Christian marriage, but marriage. Marriage is a divine institution established before the fall, before there was sin. Marriage is for everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. I remember when I was a seminary student, people used to, we used to raise these difficult questions. Well, if somebody, if two unbelievers came into your office and wanted to get married, would you marry them? Sure, marriage is for unbelievers, but if one's a believer and one's an unbeliever, that's when you have a problem. Two believers, that's okay. Two unbelievers, that's okay. But if it's mixed, no, that's that's a problem. Marriage is for everyone. It is for believer and unbeliever alike. The laws of marriage are for one man and one woman. You run into a lot of problems today because we are wanting to redefine marriage as a relationship. It's not. It's a contractual arrangement between a man and a woman. 
And that's its essence. Get rid of those notions of romantic love, those notions of uh, finding your soulmate. You know, these principles operate on arranged marriages. They operate in, in um, societies such as um, in uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan where the cultural mandate, the, the cultural operation, let's say, is where the men go and kidnap whoever they see as a, whatever woman they see that catches their eye. They go and kidnap them, take them home. The mothers and all, um, the, the women in his family and his mother all convince her that she needs to uh, put on the bridal veil, which is the sign that she's accepted him as her husband. And this is the cultural tradition. You don't have dating. You have kidnapping. Yet in that culture, if you're a believer, and when I was over in Kazakhstan, what was that, four years ago, there were a couple of the pastors there who, before they were saved, were from that area, and they their wives, they had kidnapped. And now they're married. So guess what applies? All the principles of Christian marriage. You don't get to go back and say, hmm, I didn't choose to get in this marriage, so I'm going to take off. No, the principles apply. So, see, we have to rethink our, coming from our American dating, romantic notions of marriage, we have to rethink some of these uh, mandates in Scripture because they apply, even when your volition wasn't involved. So you've got the institution of marriage for believer and unbeliever alike, and then third, the institution of family. This is what breaks down when when you start having uh, Adam and Steve trying to get married. You have the breakdown of family. You have the breakdown of the whole structure for raising children and teaching children uh, how to that they should obey God and the whole concept of authority because the very structure in such a home violates the authority of God. And so you have... Uh, problems here. This is why the marriage issue is a factor, is because if you don't maintain the sanctity of marriage, as it's defined in the Bible, it breaks down families and it breaks down society. These first three divine institutions are for the human race. They're given before there's ever sin, and they are for the purpose of perpetuating the human race for perpetuating values and teaching within the structure of a family. They provide stability in a culture. And a fourth divine institution is added here in Genesis 9, and that is the institution of human government. And the most serious decision a governing body, whether it's a governing body within a Within a uh, small family, as you, you would have had initially with the after the flood, because the first couple of generations you just don't have that many folks on the earth, or whether it's it's tribal, clan, whatever the governing structure is, there is a basis for a some sort of authority that makes judicial decisions, and the most extreme of which, of course, is to take the life of a human being because he has committed some criminal act and has thereby forfeited his right to live. So here in this in these two verses you have the basis in the scriptures for the establishment of a judicial function in the human race 
and that is a foundation for human government. Now, there's one more divine institution that's established in Genesis chapter 10, and that is the dispensation, I mean, that is the divine institution of nations and tribal groups, tribal distinctives. So those are the five divine institutions. Now, capital punishment is seen as the as first authorized and mandated in Genesis chapter 9, and it becomes the foundation for, for the institution of human government. Now, this is an issue that is controversial for some folks. There's a lot of folks who just don't understand it. So I think it behooves us to spend some time looking at this from a number of different angles. I'm going to start by just looking at it in terms of the problem it presents to us in the 21st century in our American culture. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote that the death penalty is no more effective a deterrent than life imprisonment. It is also evident that the burden of capital punishment falls upon the poor, the ignorant, and the underprivileged members of society. Now, in that one quote, we really crystallize what the anti-capital punishment argument is. First of all, the argument is that it's not a deterrent, and secondly, that it's not applied evenly or fairly or judiciously. Now, let's look at that for just a minute. Let's just think about those issues because we're going to go through this again and again in our in our study. The first statement presumes an argument that is often put forth in, in, in American discussions on capital punishment, and that is the fact that the reason you have capital punishment is that it is a deterrent. What I've pointed out again and again is that is not the argument, that's not the reason, that's not the rationale for capital punishment that's given in the Scripture. So if you're going to get involved in a discussion with someone over this issue, argue from a biblical basis, don't get sucked into a non-biblical rationale arguing for something. Second, he points out that there's a methodological flaw in its application. But see, the conclusion from that is if we're not doing it right, don't do it. That's false reasoning. Because there are many things in life we don't do right, we don't do correctly, but that doesn't mean you stop doing them. Just because a principle is uh, not fairly applied doesn't mean you do away with the principle. It means you have to revamp your application, but it doesn't mean you go back and do away with the principle. But this is the this is in a nutshell. In this quotation, is the anti-capital punishment argument. Just by way of introduction, in terms of the history, the United States has executed over 800 people since 1976 when they reestablished the legitimacy of the death penalty. That's not very many people. As of December 2002, and that is as of 2002, and at that time over 3,700 men and women were on death rows in the various states across the country. Now, I want you to think about that because if if we've only executed 800 people, 800 murderers since 1976, think about that in terms of a deterrent argument. You don't have much of a chance of going to the electric chair or 
injection, whatever, uh, on that basis. So it can't really operate as much of a deterrent if you don't apply it very frequently. Second thing that, in terms of a current situation, the United Nations Human Rights Commission has passed a resolution calling for all nations that continue to execute to restrict the number of offenses for which the death penalty may be imposed and to suspend executions with a view toward abolishing the death penalty. So there is international pressure on the United States and on the other countries. There's about 120 countries, nations that still utilize the death penalty, some in an appropriate manner, some in an inappropriate manner. But nevertheless, the United Nations international community is putting pressure, more and more pressure on nations who practice a death penalty. And, of course, you know, and we'll see when we get to Genesis 10, that the United Nations is just another attempt of man ever since the Tower of Babel to reverse the impact of the uh, curse of the Tower of Babel and to create an international organization that goes against the fifth divine institution. And there, uh, we see problems with this today. For example, after uh, 9-11, as we identified various terrorists in different, uh, in different countries, such as Germany and France, they wouldn't give them up or extradite them to the U.S. because we practice the death penalty. We have a problem with that in this country. If some murderer escapes to Canada, then the Canadian government won't extradite him back to the U.S. unless we, uh, swear up and down that we won't execute them. So we have other nations dictate policy to the U.S. out of their arrogant rebellion against the Word of God. Let's look at a little historical background now on how we got to where we are in the U.S. Prior to 1972, 5,707 people had been legally executed for capital crimes in the United States in the 20th century. Now, that to me, that doesn't seem like that is a large number, certainly not a deterrent. I wonder what the figure is. These are figures I took off of the Amnesty International website uh, this afternoon. One wonders how many people were convicted of homicide during that same period of time. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision in Furman versus Georgia, by a five-to-four vote, slim majority, and the court ruled that the death penalty statutes in Georgia and Texas violated the Eighth Amendment by involving cruel and unusual punishment. The key issue for some of the justices was that among those eligible for the death penalty, only a few were chosen, and the standard was not consistent or clear. In other words, there's an... uh, there's not a fair application of the principle. That was the thing that bothered them the most. Well, between the next, during the next three years, 35 states rewrote their capital punishment laws to conform to the Supreme Court decision. And then on July 2nd, 1976, by a 7-2 to vote, the Supreme Court declared capital punishment acceptable and legitimate. In 1977, executions resumed, and there was an expectation that there would be Numerous executions, but there were not. Uh, as this developed in 1987, 
the Supreme Court handed down another 5-4 to four decision, ruling that racial bias in imposing the death penalty was really insufficient grounds for challenging the constitutionality of capital punishment laws. Statistics do demonstrate that blacks are much more likely to be convicted and sentenced to death than whites, especially when the victim is white and the murderer is black. And those least likely to be con, uh, convicted are blacks when the victim is black. So the, but the Supreme Court ruled that despite the fact that there were disparities and there was an uneven application of the law, that did not change the nature of the law. And that's the principle. Just because a law is not applied fairly or evenly doesn't mean you throw out the law. It means you change the way in which it's applied. Now, there have been various forms of, ele- of uh, execution utilized in this country. Hanging, public hanging, which I still think is a good idea, was a form, a practical f- and common form of execution through the 19th century. See, if you're going to have a, something act as a deterrent, then people have to see it. We live in a society where people are so distanced from life and death that most people can't handle death and they can't handle birth. If you go back to your grandparents' generation, many of them were born and died in the same bed, and the whole family saw both. And now we don't. We we have these sterilized injections that nobody witnesses, and it's a painless death. This is supposed to be a punishment. That's the idea. Is it's a penal. Death, that means it's a punishment. It is not something that's supposed to be easy or sanitized. Well, as forms of execution, we, we then switched to electrocution, which was introduced in 1888, and then you had the gas chamber introduced in 1924. By 1983, nine states decided to use lethal injection, which has brought various mixed reactions. In 1981, the American Medical Association considered a resu- passed a resolution stating that a physician is a member of a profession dedicated to preserving life when there is hope of doing so should not be a participant in a legally authorized execution. They viewed it as being inconsistent with their Hippocratic Oath. In England... As recently as 1800, there were over 200 crimes that were considered capital offenses. Now, that's important historically because when our Constitution was written in 1789 and the Bill of Rights was adopted, the Eighth Amendment uh, prohibited the, the use of cruel and unusual punishment. Now, let's look at that as a historical document. You have to interpret it in terms of the intent of the writers and you have to interpret it in terms of the times in which it was written. And it was not meant to be a living document, despite what people like Al Gore says. A living document is, if you apply that kind of interpretive rationale to your taxes, you'll go to jail. If you apply that kind of interpretational rationale to the Bible, you'll go to hell. So you can't come along and say, well, it meant one thing to that generation. It means something else to this generation. It's got to mean what the authors intended, and so you have to define cruel and unusual punishment in light of the time in which the Constitution was written. At that time in England, uh, over uh, 200 crimes were considered capital offenses, but by the 20th century, Britain has outlawed the death penalty. Between 1970 and 1980, six Western European countries outlawed the death penalty. By 1980, 
Worldwide, 20 countries had outlawed the death penalty for all crimes, but since then, many more have abolished the death penalty. By 1992, the number of countries and territories that retained the death penalty had been reduced to only 106. So you can see the the move is against the death penalty. So what are the arguments that are usually advanced against using the death penalty? I want to address some of these just up front so we understand what the rationales are that you'll run into in any discussion, or maybe there's some things that, that you're concerned about, and then we will look at what the Scriptures teach. What are some of the arguments that are used against um, capital punishment? Well, first of all, is the one that, that you usually hear from your kids. Everyone is stopping it. Everyone else is stopping it, so we should too. You know, your kids come home and you say, why did you do that? Well, everyone else was doing it. According to Amnesty International, the reason you should stop doing it is because governments all over the world are eliminating the death penalty. Well, see, governments all over the world don't have a Judeo-Christian foundation for their judicial system. We do. We still live in a country that at least nods a little bit in the direction of God. We live in a country that was founded by men, for the most part, even though they may not have been personally believers, they operated within a Christian world life view and on the basis of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and they understood the, the purpose and rationale for a death penalty. The answer to this objection is simple. Everyone isn't stopping it. Many are. The reason, the ones who do are doing it because they've bought into an anti-biblical worldview. A second argument that's used against capital punishment is the argument that it, it neither deters violence nor makes society safer. Now, this is really a form of a truism. You know what a truism is? That's something that's commonly accepted to be true, but it's not. This is just another form of the truism that violence can't stop violence. See, we, you have to use violence to stop violence in a fallen world. Remember, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, one of those little passages, one of those little verses, I don't think this was, now I didn't see the passion, but, but I don't think this made the passion. Remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, in order to prevent being taken or assaulted prior to the time, knowing that he needed to go to the cross, Jesus told the disciples to bring along a couple of swords. See, there is a time to fight and a time not to fight and a time to protect yourself. And so he knew that if there was violence toward him that wouldn't it wouldn't prevent him from going to the cross that it needed to be stopped by violence the rationale that is normally presented here comes from statistical evidence for example you'll hear that records from 1967 to 1968 in the United States show that states that did not have a death penalty had a lower first degree murder rate than states that did have a death penalty. In other studies from 1920 to 1955, Michigan, which was the first state to abolish the death penalty, had a lower homicide rate than either Ohio or Indiana. 
and they both had the death penalty. Others will point to a study where Missouri abolished the death penalty from 1917 to 1919. Prior to the abolition of the death penalty and after its reinstatement, the number of homicides rose steadily. But during the period when there was no death penalty, homicides steadily decreased. Well, the problem with this is you, you can't really analyze an unknown. And the unknown is how many people didn't commit a murder because they didn't want to die. You don't know. There's no statistical way to measure that. So you cannot prove whether it's a deterrent or not because you never can measure how many people didn't commit a murder. Think about that. So the idea of that, that it isn't a deterrent isn't, isn't a provable argument. And furthermore, you don't know what other factors might be at play in the culture at that time because you can point to a lot of different periods in, in states' histories and in the U.S. history when you have a rise in the homicide rate and a decline in the homicide rate. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not there was a change in the death penalty law. These things just fluctuate. You don't know what it was like in Michigan if they had had the death, what it would have been like if they had had the death penalty in place. You can't prove the negative. In the U.S., furthermore, in the U.S., criminals know that they aren't likely to be executed. That's one factor. Remember, the number of people who have been executed is relatively small compared to the number of people who have been charged or found guilty of first-degree murder. A second reason that it, you can't go to the deterrent argument is that in murders of passion, thought and reason aren't the issue. In a murder of passion, you're not thinking about, oh, what's the deterrent? You're more concerned about not getting caught as opposed to not having to pay the full penalty. Third point, which is one I've made already, and that is there's no way to measure how many people do not commit a murder uh, because of the possibility of a death penalty. So the conclusion is that it's impossible to demonstrate that the death penalty doesn't deter. But nevertheless, deterrence isn't the biblical argument. The biblical argument is given in verse 6, and that is, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. From the image of God he made man. Why do you have capital punishment according to God? Because it is a theological statement. You have destroyed a person who's created in the image and likeness of God. And this is so serious in God's eyes that it means that you have forfeited the right to live. It doesn't mean um, that it's a deterrent. It may be a deterrent, but that's not why God said to do it or any of the other reasons that are offered. It's not vengeance. It's simply that a person has forfeited the right to live. And the line that I always love, I heard this. Some some kid got interviewed or some young person was interviewed a couple of years ago. I was listening to the radio going down to New York, and there had been some, some somebody, some teenager or young person been arrested for killing. It was a... He had killed several people. And his friend said, but he's such a good person. You see this argument today. They, they've done something horrendous. And somebody says, well, they're a good person. No, they're not. The definition of whether you're good or bad is what you've done. 
You know, if somebody's gone and committed murder, they're not by definition a good person. I don't care how many millions of dollars they've given to charitable causes. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how sweet they are to everybody else. If you've committed a murder, you're not a good person. That's a definition. Another argument that's used against um, capital punishment is a statement that it's discriminatory. It's discriminatory. Well, let's let's look at this for just a minute. First of all, there's a presuppositional problem here, and that is that people in our society think that discrimination is wrong in and of itself. But you discriminate every time you make a decision for one thing or another. Discrimination in and of itself isn't wrong. But they flash this statement out there, it's discriminatory, so therefore it's wrong. And as soon as they use the word discrimination, everybody goes, oh, that's terrible. But that's not true. We do, God discriminates. He's going to discriminate at the great white throne judgment. People who trust Christ get saved. People who don't are going to go to the lake of fire. That's discrimination. Whenever you have a criminal in a courtroom and a judge finds him guilty and sentences him, that's discrimination. Every time you make a choice, it's, of course it's discriminatory. But, of course, what they're saying is that it's not equally applied. And there are some statistics that indicate that there are serious problems with the way the death penalty is applied. A recent study of death sentences in Philadelphia found that African-American defendants were almost four times more likely to receive the death penalty than were people of other ethnic origins who committed similar crimes. Over 80% of people executed since 1976 were convicted of killing white victims, although people of color make up more than half of all homicide victims. 80% of people executed since 1976 were convicted of killing white victims. That's not a fair or balanced application of the law. Furthermore, a defendant who can afford to pay his, his or her own attorney is much less likely to be sentenced to die. 95% of all people on death row could not afford to pay their own attorney. These are inequities in the system. Furthermore, from 1930 to 1957 in the United States, more than half the executions for murder involved non-whites, and in the South, more than twice as many blacks as whites were executed. That's an inequity in the system. It's not just. It's not a fair and equal application of the principle. Of all people legally executed in the U.S. between 1930 and 1980, about 53.3% were black, even though U.S. population during that period was only 10% black. So there, there's a lot of problems with the way in which it's applied. That doesn't mean you don't apply it. Remember, God in his omniscience, when he established his principle in Genesis 6, knew that man would not apply it fairly. Nevertheless, he delegated that responsibility to the human race. Another complaint is that it's used to silence political opposition. That would not apply to the U.S., but it certainly would apply in some countries. That it's a tool of political repression to silence political opponents. And once again, this is a problem of methodology. It's not a problem of morality. Some of these objections apply to 
the, the fact that is, is it moral, is it ethical or not. Others apply to its application, how it's applied. And, of course, this would be an inappropriate application of the principle. Fifth, the complaint is it's irreversible. Juries make mistakes. Sometimes the wrong evidence is brought forth. Sometimes you discover exculpatory evidence down the line. So if you've executed them, you don't have a chance to reverse the decision. Once again, God in his omniscience knew that man was fallible and would make wrong decisions. He nevertheless de- uh, delegated the responsibility to man. It's not an option. It is a responsibility for man to govern well and to govern wisely, even though he will make mistakes. A sixth objection is that the death penalty isn't a solution. The argument here is that uh, it just creates more victims. It doesn't really solve anything. It just perpetuates a cycle of violence. If we truly believe that killing is wrong, we must abolish uh, the death penalty. Now, I want you to listen to that statement. That's a direct quote from the uh, Amnesty International website. If we truly believe that killing is wrong, we must abolish the death penalty. What's wrong with that statement? Killing isn't, by definition, wrong. We'll see that when we get to our study of Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. There are many times when the taking of a human life is legitimate and authorized in Scripture. Don't make an absolute of a wrong principle and then try to force everything to fit it. And that's what's happening there. There's this presupposition that killing and violence is inherently and always wrong. Therefore, don't keep um, perpetuating it. Then, and furthermore, it says, well, this just creates more victims. Well, in this sense, the victims that it creates are the family of the person that's executed, the family of the criminal. He created them as victims as well as the person he murdered. It is not the, the punishment that's making victims out of them. Furthermore, I'm not even sure if we ought to call members of his family victims. They're certainly not victims in the same sense the person that's murdered is a victim. We have to put our emphasis on the, the uh, victim of the crime and their family and not on the criminal and his family. Another objection is that it's just vengeance or retribution. Primarily, you'll hear this argument that it's just uh, it's just vengeance, and you'll run into this. You'll interview somebody who's never thought about it, and they had some loved one murdered by some uh, homicidal maniac, and they say, "Well, I just want vengeance." They ought to be slapped. You know, they can't even think it. It's not about vengeance; it's about justice. Think about it. It is not about vengeance. The issue is justice. In fact, the Hebrew word that is translated vengeance, when it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, that word really means justice. It doesn't mean vengeance in the sense of gaining personal revenge. The idea of ju- is justice, and God has delegated justice to the human race. Even cr- many... Uh, Christians, of course, recognize that, that punishment based on vengeance is not appropriate based on a number of passages in Scripture. But retribution is. Retribution, if it's understood, is justice. It is the legally authorized 
means of punishing a criminal. We must recognize that, first of all, the justice and vengeance are two completely different issues. Vengeance has to do with an individual, an unauthorized individual settling a score. Justice has to do with the legally established uh, authorities uh, dealing with a criminal act. Secondly, we must realize that justice can be retributive without being vengeful. They are not the same thing. Third, we must realize that because some victims are vengeance-motivated doesn't mean the death penalty is vengeance-based or the capital punishment is necessarily vengeance-based. In any society, those who cannot keep the laws should be punishment should be punished because they don't obey the law. The underlying issue really goes back to the debate that's been going on in this country for the last 150 years. Is it is incarceration for punishment or for rehabilitation? Now, if you believe that man is inherently good, then you're going to want to rehabilitate him because they're rehabilitatable. Is that a word? You can rehabilitate them because they're inherently good. Oh, it's not his fault. It's society's fault. It's, it, he grew up in poverty. His, his, he was abused when he was a child. It's not his fault he grew up to be a mass murderer. Let's rehabilitate him. But the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And that applies to you, every one of you, and me too, that we're corrupt sinners and that it takes discipline to restrain the sin nature. And when you are in a, any individuals at a point when they are no longer capable of restraining their sin nature to the point that it becomes destructive to society, then they need to be removed from society just as you would cut out a malignant cancer. And that's what the death penalty is all about. It is looking to what's best for society and not what's best for the criminal. We have to recognize the underlying presupposition is uh, relates to the nature of man. Do you have a biblical view of man that man is totally depraved and a sinner and corrupt, or do you have a uh, a liberal human viewpoint concept of man as being inherently good? Then we have a eighth objection that's raised against capital punishment, and that is that it's cruel and unusual punishment. What is claimed here is that by definition, the death penalty is cruel and unusual. But the founding fathers didn't understand it that way, did they? They clearly authorized the death penalty. And they utilized means of execution that we no longer think are acceptable. See, what happens is those who are against the uh, capital punishment usually argue that any kind of punishment is cruel and unusual. They just don't want any kind of punishment at all. They argue that cruel means deliberately causing pain or injury. Think about that. If cruel means deliberately causing pain or injury, then you can't even put, lock up some dope-dealing mass murderer for anything. Lock him up. That's cruel. So you've got a poor, de- poor concept of definition here. Also, they would say that the emotional grief caused by simply arresting this poor crook is cruel. The problem is that we get into redefining terms such as cruel and unusual in terms of of our culture. Back in the French Revolution, you had execution by guillotine. Well, that was considered to be cruel and unusual by the founding fathers uh, 
of this country. Then you had the chopping block where they would just take one smooth, hopefully one smooth swipe and take off the head. Now, there are a few instances where it took more than one in order to make sure the head came off. The executioner just didn't make a clean sweep. Then we had public hangings. I always like that idea because everybody gets to see it. It acts a little more like a deterrent that way. Not that that's the ultimate reason, but it is a side benefit in some cases. Then you have the electric chair. And this is a nice picture of the electric chair for you and someone being strapped into it. And now what we do is we put them in a sanitized room and just give them an injection. The answer to this is, first of all, the number of executions that are actually carried out for capital crimes in this country is not unusual. And since the criminal is not tortured, the penalty isn't cruel. See, that was what the idea of cruel and unusual was, was torturing the prisoner, drawing and quartering them. The problem is you can redefine cruel and unusual to deny all kinds of punishments. Now, that was the argument that was used in the Supreme Court decision back in 1972 that the reason that you shouldn't practice the death penalty was because it was cruel and unusual. Now, when we come to the Bible, it doesn't define the kind of uh, death penalty or the methodology. It doesn't set up a specific form of government. It just lays down the principle that man has the prerogatives to police himself, and that means that he has to adjudicate criminal actions and to deal with them in an appropriate manner. And because the rationale that is given in Genesis chapter 9 is that man is in the image of God, we have to recognize that in our first principle, capital punishment is first and foremost an issue of theology. I bet you never thought of it that way. If anything has to do with taking life, then ultimately you have to understand it in terms of a theological framework. It has to do with the value of human life and why God created man. And so capital punishment then becomes an issue of theology. In fact, all ethics, all moral judgments are ultimately determined by a person's theology. So if you're a believer, that means you have to go back to the Bible and let the Bible define your understanding of any issue. You can't let society define it. You can't let the inappropriate or inequitable application of a principle define it. You have to start with an absolute, and then you work your your applications out from that absolute. It's a matter of theology because whoever determines what life is, when it begins and when it ends, what its parameters are, uh, is the one who determines uh, the basis for taking life in a, in a just manner. Second point, we have to recognize that capital punishment was not a part of the first two dispensations. This wasn't a part of the dispensation of perfect environment between the uh, creation and the fall. It wasn't a part of the dispensation of human conscience between the fall and the flood. But God sees fit to establish it here in Genesis chapter 9. Third observation, capital punishment is as much a part of the Noahic covenant as the promise to not flood the earth again and the authorization to eat meat. See, these are each 
provisions of this covenant, all marked by the promise that God will not cause, uh, not destroy the earth by water again, and the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. As long as you see that rainbow, you ought to also be thinking that capital punishment is still in effect. So if any part of this contract is still in effect, the whole contract is still in effect. Now, this is going to be different when we get to the Mosaic Law because, see, the way that, that many people want and many Christians argue for the capital punishment is to go to the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law was a temporary law code, and it was only for the nation Israel. The Noahic Covenant is for every nation on the planet of the earth, It was for, and it's, and it's still in effect. The Mosaic Law Code was ended at the cross. And we're not under that. We're not even part of the nation Israel. So the Mosaic Law Code didn't even apply to other nations. But they, but the Mosaic Law Code, as we'll see, is just a, a, an example, one example in a divinely given political constitution of the principle of capital punishment and how it was to be utilized. Fourth point. The authorization from capital punishment comes from God and not from man. Now, what do I mean by that? This isn't something that was generated by the creature. Man didn't sit around and say, you know, we've got a problem with a lot of murderers and a lot of rapists and a lot of violent uh, criminals out here. We need to do something to stop this. The provision for capital punishment is given right after the flood when there's only eight people on the planet, and they're all believers, and they're all part of the same family, and nobody's a homicidal maniac. In other words, you've got things about as close to perfection as you could get in a fallen world. And God authorizes capital punishment. It's not motivated by a situation. It's motivated by God's plan and purposes for how he's going to uh, be operating in human history from that point on. Fifth point, the authorization for capital punishment is a mandate. It's not an option. This isn't a suggestion that it might be a good idea if you, you applied this. It's a mandate from God for all the descendants of Noah. Remember, the covenant is made with Noah. Verse 11, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be flood uh, this is a sign I make between me and you. It's established between you. Uh, verse 9. I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So it is with all members of the human race. Sixth point. The authorization for capital punishment is not based on pragmatics such as a deterrent effect, but on an absolute. Man is in the image of God. I've hit this point again and again. Hopefully it will drive it home. It's not based on some pragmatic application. It's not driven by necessity. It's not driven by circumstances. It's not driven by certain situations. It's driven by an absolute standard. Man is in the image of God. But see, if man is a product of thousands of years of evolution, then man is just another animal like every other animal. And so... Well, maybe we won't kill them. And see, where we're going with this is you don't kill animals. Now, see, some of the anti-capital punishment crowd will come along and say, well, see, you want to apply that, but, but you don't want to apply the part back here where if an animal takes a human life, you kill the animal. Well, they certainly do that in some, some situations. But that's the principle. If anyone, man or beast, 
takes the life of a human being, then their life was to be forfeit. And just because it's not applied consistently doesn't mean you shouldn't apply it. Seventh point. Thus, the authorization for capital punishment provides the basis for human government. This provides the basis for government, not in the way you may think of it, excuse me, in a political science class, but we have government that exists in all kinds of forms. It can be a patriarchal setup where you just have the family, and that's what you had in Genesis 9. Or it can exist in a tribal form or a clan or a village, a city government, region, state, or nation. Government can exist in many different forms and many different structures. But you don't have the concept of nations yet, of that uh, clear division between uh, people groups. But it it does establish some uh, authorized, legitimate ruling authority. Eighth point, the Noahic Covenant legitimizes capital punishment for only murder. That's all that's laid down here is murder. But this does not restrict its application in other areas. It clearly establishes the principle of ca- and legitimizes capital punishment, but it doesn't restrict it from other areas as we shall see when we get into the Mosaic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant defines here the principle but not the methodology. It doesn't define the form of administration, the type of government, the type of judicial system, but it does imply certain things. It implies that that if you're going to have a system to adjudicate and determine uh, guilt and apply the principle that there needed to be a system for objective evaluation of evidence. There needed to be a consistent application of the principle across the board. And the one point that we'll see is that capital punishment isn't based on the Mosaic Law. That's just one example. See, the Mosaic Law is a governing code. It's a constitution that God gave to one nation, the nation Israel. We have our constitution. Other nations have their constitutions. With with, um, The Mosaic Law was a constitution given to the nation Israel. In that constitution, the death penalty is authorized for a variety of different crimes. And this is God's ideal form of government for the nation Israel. So that provides an example for how other nations can utilize the death penalty, but it doesn't mandate that every other nation should apply the death penalty in the same way that the Mosaic Law calls for it. For example, this is the ninth point. The Mosaic Law provides, the Mosaic Covenant provides a divinely authored government constitution showing that capital punishment may be applied in other areas. Now, let's just look at them. Under the Mosaic system, murder was a capital crime, Exodus 21.12, Numbers 25.26-31. Not necessarily manslaughter, but what we would call murder one, first-degree murder, homicide. Sabbath violation. If you violated the Sabbath, that was a capital crime. You were punished by stoning, Exodus 35.2. Cursing parents. Now, there's a lovely form of execution. Stoning. Talk about cruel. And you see how we come, man comes along in his human viewpoint autonomy and seeks to, de, you know, define these things. Well, that's, stoning's cruel and unusual. Well, God authorized it. Therefore, by definition, it's not cruel or unusual. 
You may not like it, but you've got to think biblically and not like the bleeding hearts in our society think. Cursing parents. I know you're going to love this one. If some adolescent curses his parents, then that's a capital crime. Take him out and stone him. Why? Because he's failed to learn authority orientation. And that's going to lead to a breakdown in the society and in the culture and lead to criminality. So you cut it off at the root. Leviticus 29, 20, verse 9. Adultery. Why? Because it breaks down the second divine institution of marriage. And that will lead to a destruction of the society. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Incest. Same thing. Breaks down the family. Leviticus 20, 22 to 12. Notice how these... These mur- murder steals the life of an individual. It's the worst form of theft. You've stolen their future. You've stolen all their hopes, all their dreams. See, th- you've violated their whole, their whole uh, uh, first, first divine institution right, so to speak, in terms of human responsibility. They don't have a life to be responsible for anymore. So you see what underlies a lot of this has to do with, with how these uh, crimes affect the divine institutions. Incest, sodomy, that's homosexuality for those of you who don't know. That's the technically legal term, sodomy. Leviticus 20, verse 13, and verses 15 to 16. Sodomy was a capital crime. False prophecy. Boy, there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot of dead preachers today, wouldn't there? All these health and wealth guys. We're coming out with the words of knowledge and words of wisdom. If they had to be 100% right like the Bible demands, they'd all be stoned. We wouldn't have any of those guys on TV. Idolatry. That would certainly take a lot of people out of society because idolatry isn't just the worship of overt idols made with metal, wood, and stone, but also uh, worshiping abstract idols of the mind. Idolatry was punishable by capital by, by death. Incorrigible juvenile rebellion. Deuteronomy twenty one, eight to twenty one. So that if parents you you have a juvenile delinquent, you get to take him out in the public square, but you're the first ones to cast the stone. Rape, punishable by death. Deuteronomy twenty two twenty five. Any animal that killed a human was to forfeit its life. Exodus twenty one twenty nine. Kidnapping was a capital crime. Exodus 21, verse 6. Aliens, and that's not from outer space. That's those who were from outside of Israel. Uh, any non-Jew that intruded into a sacred place would forfeit his life. Numbers 1, 5, 13, 10, and 17, 7. So you see here many different uh, crimes or capital crimes under the Mosaic Law. Now, that covers the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Because many people say, well, under the New Testament, we're under a new law. We're not under the old law, but we're under the law of Christ, the law of love. We're supposed to apply mercy, and uh, we're to love our enemy. Well, we'll look at that next time. We'll look at the New Testament issues uh, next week and finish our study on capital punishment next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by what your word teaches and to see how it is uh, juxtaposed to the 
many of the uh, ideas that are prevalent in our society today. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and and to be able to communicate them in a fair, balanced way to those uh, within our periphery, that we might take a stand for biblical truth, and we might take a stand for absolutes and a strengthening of the divine institutions in our society. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.